Revelation, Revelation chapter 13. An enormous thanks to our brother Sergio, who brought the word so faithfully these last three weeks, studying the book of Acts. He is downstairs now teaching the kiddos, so uh, thank him when he gets back up here after the service. But a huge thank you to him for faithfully preaching the word of God, going to the book of Acts, seeing the early church. What a great little respite from Revelation. Uh, I love how he said last week that it was a, a love letter to CBC. So we move from a love letter to CBC to the middle of the worst time in all of human history in the tribulation. So uh, this will have a different tone than our church is amazing and praise God for it. But we are back in the book of Revelation and this book has been so amazing. I, I think probably because most of us think of Revelation as a future event, which the majority of it is dealing with future events, yes. But we tend to, incorrectly and erroneously, we tend to think that something in the Bible that's talking about a future event does not have impact for us today, that this is only somehow for tribulation saints or believers in the middle of the tribulation, that's not the reality. That's not the reality of the Bible, right? The Bible was written, much of the Bible, much of the Old Testament was written as prophecy of events that were yet to come for Israel, and yet those future events were going to shape and change the way Israel lived in those moments in the present. And I think one of the most amazing aspects of our study thus far is going through this book seeing the future events prophesied, letting them live there, leaving them there, not bringing them back symbolically here. We're, we're not doing that. These are future events, but we're pressing as hard as we can to see how those future events impact us today. And this morning is going to be no different. This morning we will be seeing a future event in the middle of the tribulation. Just by way of reminder, that period of seven years that is yet to come uh, in the Old Testament, Daniel's 70th week, it's a period of seven years. It's the end times. It is split into two halves where you have three and a half years of decently peaceful events. There is a lot of bad things happening, but as far as the Antichrist is concerned, he's keeping his peace treaty. And then he's going to break that peace treaty, not only with Israel, but with other surrounding nations. When he breaks that peace treaty halfway through the middle of that seven-year period, of that tribulation period, he breaks that in the middle doing what is called the abomination of desolation. We'll look at it in more detail in the weeks to come. But he breaks his peace treaty. He starts to go after the Jews. We looked at that already uh, as they had to be flown out into the wilderness on those two wings of the eagle. God spares them. He goes after Christians, most of whom will die uh, by being persecuted and killed. Um, under severe suffering, uh, under severe um, difficulties because of what the Antichrist is going to do. And then at the end of that seven-year period, Christ is going to return. He's going to wage war at the Battle of Armageddon. He's going to overcome the devil, the first beast, who is the Antichrist, and the second beast, who we are going to meet this morning, who is called the false prophet. And he's going to do away with them. And we'll get to the rest of that at the end of chapter 19 and into chapter 20 when we get there. But just by way of reminder, that's where we are in the book of Revelation. It's describing the end times 
and how Christ is going to establish his earthly kingdom that he promised to Israel so many years ago, and how the devil is going to try and establish his own kingdom to wage war against God's kingdom, and hopefully, in the devil's mind, keep the Lord from establishing his kingdom and thus make him break a promise that he had made to Israel. So there's so much happening here. There's so much that we've studied. We are right in the middle of chapter 13. We met the Antichrist really in depth for the first time a number of weeks ago. And now we will meet his right-hand man, a man by the, the title of false prophet or another beast or the second beast. Let's read together in Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even he can even make fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that that image of the beast would even speak and cause as many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. He provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Let's pray together. Father, we come to a, a passage that has familiar labels and terms. And then there's aspects in this passage that maybe are unfamiliar to us. Father, I pray that you would continue to keep us from uh, the, the fanciful, from being um, swayed by any salacious commentary about Revelation. We, we're not interested in the mystical, the magical, the wonderful. We're interested in the truth. And we want to know what these verses mean by what they say and what that meaning means for us today. And I believe it's abundantly clear. So, Father, guide us. Be our, be our guide. Be our director. Point us. Move us. Open our eyes to see. As we pray every Sunday from the Psalms, open our eyes, Holy Spirit, that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We can see, but we will be like the Pharisees who see, but do not see if we don't have your spirit. So we come completely dependent upon you. You must work. You must act. Or else this is the biggest waste of time in the world. So, Father, please, not because of anything inside of us, not even because of our own desire, which is stained with sin, 
but only because of your grace and mercy and kindness and love. Please speak to us through your word today. May your Holy Spirit show us Christ and may we love him more because of our time in Revelation 13. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. This passage gives us really three different aspects about this man, the false prophet, the second beast. And so we're going to divide our time up into those three sections. We're going to look at his person, we're going to look at his power, and we're going to look at his purpose. We're going to look at his person, his power, and his purpose. And inside of each of these three points, we're, we're going to see the tactics that he uses in the end times as well as the tactics that the devil uses today. And I think that will be our connection to how this applies to us this morning. So let's look at this second beast's person. Who is this individual? This is verses 11 and verse 12. Then I saw, John writes, I saw another beast. Uh, another, if you remember, we've seen this word another a, a few times in Revelation so far. There are two Greek words for another. There's another of the same kind and another of a different kind. Alos, another of the same kind. Heteros, another of a different kind. This is another of the same kind. It's a similar kind of beast. To give you an example of why we need this technicality, if I'm at Starbucks and I get a drink and uh, I get one for my wife, let's say she wants a specific drink and I take a sip of it and I say, I love that. I go back to the counter and I say, can I have another? Let's say I get her a drink and I take a sip of it and I hate it and I go, oh, I don't want that. I go back and I say, can I have another? I, I, I want another one. I don't want that one. I want a different one. So context for us English speakers gives us an understanding of what that word another means. It can either mean I really love it and I want another of the same kind or I really don't like it and I want another one but a completely different kind. In Greek, because God wrote the Bible, the New Testament, in an insanely technical language, we have no question as to what this word another means. We don't even need the context because it's a specific word, alas, another of the exact same kind. And the reason why that's important is this beast is empowered by the same power that gives strength to the first beast. This beast has the exact same agenda of the first beast, which if you remember, go back to verse Four. end of verse 3, they're amazed, the world is amazed at this first beast, the Antichrist, because he had this fatal wound but was healed. And so they follow after the beast, and then in verse 4, they worship the dragon because the dragon gave his authority to the beast. So as they worship the beast, they're worshiping the dragon. Remember, the dragon is the devil, that's Satan. And so Satan's wanting to be worshipped and take worship away from the Lord and, and direct it to himself. And so he sets up the Antichrist as a means by which he will receive worship. So this second beast, another beast, another of the same kind, has the exact same goal, the exact same purpose, and the exact same empowerment. The first beast, the Antichrist, is that little horn in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. He is the prince that will come in Daniel 9, 26. He's the willful king in Daniel 11. He's the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. And remember, John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, that there are many antichrists, plural, little a and plural, that are here today. They're now. They're trying to take worship away from the Lord and direct worship to anyone other than him. And then there will be a, one, singular, antichrist that's going to come later, capital A. 
In the exact same way, just as the false Christs, the antichrists who have plagued mankind will continue and culminate in a final antichrist, so also there are many false prophets that have come that will culminate in one singular false prophet to come. That's this man, this second beast. In fact, if you turn to Revelation 19, verse 20, Revelation 19, verse 20, John says, the beast was seized and with him the false prophet. So the beast is the Antichrist and with him the false prophet, the second beast who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. They're going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Spoiler alert. So the false prophet, second beast, false prophet, same individual. In fact, the remainder of Revelation from Revelation 14 on is going to call this second beast, the false prophet, over and over and over again. But we meet him here for the very first time. So, seven-year period, you could call it Daniel's 70th week, you could call it the tribulation. In that seven-year period, there are going to be two leaders who are going to emerge, the Antichrist and the false prophet. One is political, one is religious in nature. If the first beast, the Antichrist, is Satan's hands, then the second beast is Satan's mind. The first beast comes up out of the sea, the second beast comes up out of the land. And look at how he's a little bit different. He's the same in purpose and power, but he's a little bit different. Comes up out of the earth. He has two horns like a lamb. Remember the other beast had several horns indicating a fullness of power and authority. This beast only has two horns. He's like a lamb. He looks like a lamb. He just has two little horns. He's meek. He's mild. He's cuddly. He's not like the Antichrist in uh, insane power being demonstrated in everything that he does. Fewer number of horns indicates less power, less ability to work power. But what he lacks in outright power, this man compensate, compensates for in cunning and corrupting influence. So he's going to move in different ways than the Antichrist. He's, he's the same, has the same power, same purpose, a little bit different the way that he uses it. But you can see in the end of verse 11, he speaks like a dragon. He speaks the lies of the devil, and he speaks empowered by the devil. So though he's a little bit different than the first beast, he has the exact same power and purpose. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. All the authority that the first beast has, this man has. And he's going to make the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So really, verse 12 tells us that the second beast is the implementer of the first beast's agenda. He's the main religious assistant. He's the main religious henchman of the first beast. He is the first beast's right-hand man to make everything that the first beast wants to happen, happen. And what does the first beast want? He wants those who dwell on the earth to worship the devil, to worship the dragon. So we have... Three individuals, many people refer to these three individuals as the, the unholy trinity. You have the, the devil, who's really imitating God, as it were, God the Father, as it were, blaspheming the Father, saying that the Father's promises to Israel are not true. 
Then you have this first beast, the second member of this unholy trinity, the Antichrist, and he's really blaspheming Jesus. If Jesus is God incarnate, then the Antichrist is the devil incarnate. And then you have the second beast, who's the third member of this unholy trinity. He's the false prophet, and he's pointing the whole world to the Antichrist, which is exactly what the Holy Spirit does except to Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit's main goal and job is to point people to the beauty and glory of Christ. So the false prophet really is a false Holy Spirit, an anti-Holy Spirit, if you will. This is satanic imitation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in pointing people to Jesus, this unholy trinity really owning the world in these last seven years of the tribulation. So how does this man do this? It's interesting the way that these two play off each other. I don't know if uh, your parents ever did this to you, the old good cop, bad cop routine. kind of seems like that's what's happening here, right? We've got the we got the, the bad cop, we got the Antichrist who's showing up, and he's just saying, my way or the highway. And then you have the false prophet, who's really the good cop. He's meek, he's mild. He has two horns instead of the full plethora of horns. He has less power, and he's just kind of pleading with the world. I mean, I know that he can be kind of grumpy, but the Antichrist worthy of being followed. I know he can kind of be a little bit mean, but seriously, you should follow him. A little bit of good cop, bad cop happening. And the way that he's going to do this practically, and this is where I think point number one in our application for today, is he's going to use the tactic of false philosophy and man-made religion. The false prophet, in order to get the world to start following the Antichrist, is going to use the tactic of false philosophy and man-made religion. And that's why this is no different than today. How many times is a false philosophy, ideology, or worldview promoted that will take you away from a biblical worldview? And how many times has man-made religion maybe get close to hitting the mark, but just misses it, normally by saying, God loves you, God wants you in heaven, and you just have to do these few things to earn your way there. Every man-made religion says, at some point, you have to do something to earn your way to God. That's what makes Christianity different than every other religion. I don't really like calling Christianity a religion, but if we're going to call it that, that's what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. Christianity says if you try to work to get to heaven, that's the one thing that won't let you get there. You can't work to get there. Every other religion says you can work, you can do something. And this man is going to say, hey, the Antichrist will help you. Secondly, we'll see his power. We've seen his person, verses 11 through 12. And now we'll look at his power, verses 13 through the beginning of 15. Notice his power. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. This false prophet's going to perform signs of his own, mimicking not only those performed by Jesus, but also those performed by Elijah, also those performed by the two witnesses that we met earlier in a few chapters back. Again, the devil can only imitate. He's not original in his ideas. He can only take what God's done and say, let me imitate that in some way, shape, or form. He's going to deceive those who dwell on the earth, verse 14, because of these signs. He's going to be deceiving the world. 
Turn back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says in this section of scripture, which is called the Olivet Discourse, and it's all about the end times, and we've been here a couple times before, but Jesus says in Matthew 24, he talks about the false prophets, plural, that are going to lead to this false prophet, singular. Verse 23 uh, Matthew 24, verse 23, if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him, because false Christs, or antichrists, and false prophets will arise. So that's both plural, and they're going to culminate in singular antichrist, singular false prophet, and they will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So they're going to show these great signs, they're going to perform these wonders, and their goal is to try and deceive the elect. They're going to deceive the whole world, and the whole world's going to go with them, but they're going to try and get Christians to follow. You can't really see it here in English when it says to mislead, if possible, even the elect, but it's a conditional clause in the Greek, which means if possible, though it is not possible. They, they want to deceive the elect, though that is not possible. If it were possible, they could do it but it's not possible. It's the exact same phrase, it's the same construction of the phrase that's found in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, where Jesus says the exact same thing. They're desiring to deceive the elect if that were possible, but it's not possible. And that phrase is used one chapter later in Mark 14, where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus says, if it is possible, let this hour pass me by. What Jesus is praying is, if there's any other way, please make it happen, but I know there's no other way. There's no other way to do this. It's not possible. So Jesus says at the end of verse 24, or verse 25 in Matthew 24, behold, I have told you these things in advance. I've told you there are going to be many people, many antichrists, many false prophets who are going to try to mislead believers. They can't mislead the elect. The elect are the sheep of God who hear his voice and follow him wherever he goes. These people that are being misled are false converts. They're the people in Mark 4 with the parable of the soils who have received, they're at soil number two and soil number three. They've received the word of God. They begin to grow, but they don't have any root in them. And so when some other ideology comes along, when persecution comes along, when some other man-made philosophy comes along, they say, I don't want this Christianity stuff anymore. I want to follow what I want to follow. And they're deceived. There will be a great falling away of Christians, but we have to put that in quotes because the elect will not fall away. And that's why my question to you this morning is, do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you're saved? Because if you know that you're saved, you know that you don't have to fear being taken away. You know that God and his Holy Spirit who began the good work in you will be faithful to perfect it and complete it. But if you don't know that you're saved, then you are ripe for being taken away. You are ripe for being taken away by the false prophets, the antichrists, and then ultimately culminating in those last two individuals. Back to Revelation chapter 13. In verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth. He has amazing power, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform. He's not doing it on his own power. He's doing it through the power of the devil who's not doing it on his own ability but was given the allowance 
and ordaining to be able to do those things by God the Father. Nobody's working autonomously here. They're all on leashes. And their leashes are much shorter than they think they are. Our God is holding tight to everything that these blasphemers are doing. So, he deceives the earth. And then as he does that, end of verse 14, he tells those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had a wound of the sword, that fatal wound, and has come to life. Some people think that this is an image like a coin, and they put it on a coin. I think it's probably a statue or something like that. In fact, we're going to see language that comes straight from Daniel. So this is reminiscent of what Nebuchadnezzar did. Remember the king in Daniel built that statue and said, bow down and worship it. That's what's going to be happening here. So, by the way, not only does Satan not have any original ideas, he doesn't have any new ploys that he can invent. He's just going back to Daniel and going, well, that kind of worked back then. Let's do it again. He has no new ideas. And so he says, let's make a statue. Let's get the false prophet to get the world to make a statue of the first beast, the Antichrist. And then verse 15, the beginning of verse 15, the false prophet was given power to do one more crazy thing, as if fire coming down out of heaven isn't enough. He's given breath to give to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would speak. Now, there's really only two ways of taking this. Some people say it's a hologram. Some people say it's fake. It's kind of like Wizard of Oz type stuff. Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Some people say it actually happens. I, I don't think that it's impossible for a statue to actually be given breath to somehow be able to speak. I don't think that that's out of the realm of possibility, so that might be the case. I also have a feeling that though holograms and all that will be getting better, we'll be getting used to those things. We'll be getting aware of when that happens, such that if it were to happen again, people would go, oh, whatever, no big deal. I think that there's something here. I mean, the language sure, sure seems to say that this statue speaks. He moves. However it happens, though, the good thing is we know that our God is still on the throne even as these crazy signs are taking place. These crazy signs that are going on, it says even here in verse 15, it was given to him. This man does not have power on his own. The Antichrist does not have power on his own. Even the devil himself does not have power autonomous to himself. So this image that's referred to three times later, uh, it's referred to in this chapter, and then it's referred to seven more times in the book. It becomes the center of false religious worship in that period of seven years in the tribulation. Now, we don't know who these people are. A lot of people want to take guesses. This has happened for I mean, hundreds of years as to who is the Antichrist? Who is the false prophet? Some people thought that Gorbachev was the Antichrist because he had a mark on his forehead, and that mark was the mark of the beast. So there we go. We found, we found the Antichrist. I, I don't think, well, we know that Gorbachev wasn't the Antichrist. I, I don't think that we know right now. We can make guesses. We can wonder about it. We've seen many times already that the countries that the Antichrist is going to take over 
are primarily Muslim and Catholic in their religion. So somehow the Antichrist is going to bring together a Catholic world and a Muslim world. That's why a lot of people would say that one of these figures, the Antichrist, let's say the Antichrist is a Muslim, and then the false prophet is a Catholic, and somehow they're brought together. Some people think that the false prophet is the Pope. Could be. We don't know. What we do know, very clearly biblically, is that the Antichrist is going to begin with the promise of peace, and then he's going to break that peace treaty for all those who do not worship the image that the false prophet has set up. So they're going to work together, and halfway through, they're going to establish this image in the middle of Jerusalem, in the middle of the temple. He's going to say that you must worship me, and if people do not worship him, they will be killed. End of verse 15. And he causes as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And there are going to be many that will be. We, we've seen the person of this false prophet. We've seen his, his power. And just as we saw a tactic with regard to his person of false philosophy and man-made religion, we also see a tactic here in his power. A tactic that the devil uses time and time again to lead people astray. And it's the tactic of supernatural power. The devil uses supernatural, I would say demonic power, to lead people astray. He does this in churches. This isn't just somewhere in some tribe, somewhere in the middle of a, a place that's never been reached, and it's just demonic witchcraft. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about false philosophy, man-made religion, and supernatural power being used together to create a sense of this is powerful spirituality. This happens where the gospel is proclaimed, but it's a false gospel. Signs, miracles, and wonders are the biggest displays of truth. That's why signs, miracles, and wonders are great. They do happen today. Praise the Lord. He does them. Amen and amen. But even a sign needs to be explained. An event. Remember the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke. When Jesus rose from the dead, he meets those two individuals. The two individuals are walking. He meets them. He says, what's going on? They're sad. And they say, well, there was a, a guy we followed, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of him. He, he, we thought he was going to be the Messiah. He died on a cross. We thought this is it. Somebody said that he rose from the dead. That didn't change their mind. This is an event, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they go, well, maybe he did. We don't know. And it doesn't happen that their eyes are open and they understand who Jesus is until Jesus explains the meaning of the resurrection. So a sign on its own does nothing. Remember John chapter 6. Jesus performs the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which is probably the feeding of the 25,000 because it was only 5,000 men. And he feeds all those people. If you and I are sitting there, we would think, yes, this is the Son of God. We're following him. And you remember what the crowds do after that day? They spend the night. They say, we're going to make this man our king because he gives us free food. This is great. And when Jesus says, no, 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 I haven't come to give you free food. I've come to give you myself. I'm the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you will have eternal life. And they go, that's not what we want. And they leave. They saw a sign that very few people in the history of the world have ever seen. And that sign does nothing for them. In fact, it hardens their hearts. So signs... Any ministry that is only all about promoting signs, miracles, wonders as the means by which we're going to help you understand Jesus, that's not it. 
That's not it. That's not what the miracles are about. And that's why the devil is going to use this false, false prophet to say, do signs, sign after sign after sign, miracle, wonder, oohs and ahs in the crowds to follow the Antichrist. No, <laughs> maybe it's a much more boring tactic, but it's an actually biblical one to preach this book and let the sign of the Holy Spirit illuminating your heart and your understanding to what this book says. That's what we rely on. That's what we rely on. That's what the Bible says we should rely on. It's the word of God that brings about regeneration in the hearts of those who are listening. It's not signs and wonders that brings about regeneration. So signs and wonders are great. They happen, yes, amen, and amen. But it's not those things that cause salvation to happen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not faith comes by hearing and hearing by seeing a miracle. And so this false prophet will use the tactic of supernatural power. So just, brothers and sisters, please, don't discredit miracles. Don't discredit signs and wonders. They happen. God does those things today. But be cautious and careful if you hear the ringing of signs and wonders to produce salvation. That's when we know we've got to take one step back. They didn't in the Gospels. They don't in the book of Acts. The preaching of God's word is what does those things, bringing about regeneration in the hearts of the hearers. Point number three, the purpose of this false prophet. We've seen his person and that he utilizes the tactic of false philosophy and man-made religion. We've seen his power and that he utilizes that power and the tactic of signs and wonders and supernatural power to bring people away from God, most likely in the name of God as a false Messiah figure. And then number three, his purpose, which you already know. You know his purpose. This is the end of verse 15 all the way through the end of the chapter. He wants to cause as many as do not worship the image to be killed. So the whole point of this man is to get people to worship the Antichrist and in doing so to worship the devil. That's his purpose. We've seen his person. We've seen his power. We know his purpose. It's to take people away from Jesus and get them to worship the Antichrist and by doing so worship the dragon. And if you don't, he's going to use another tactic here. And this tactic is very upfront. It's very obvious. And it's in the beginning of verse 15, and it really runs all the way throughout. If you don't worship, you die. This is the tactic of you must conform or else I kill you. As many as don't worship, just like King Nebuchadnezzar, you will be killed. This isn't new, by the way. Back in the time of John's writing of Revelation, which I was thinking about with Sergio preaching the book of Acts, there, most likely there were people that are being spoken of in the book of Acts who lived to read the book of Revelation, which is really cool to think about how these two come together. But in the book of Acts, uh, during the time of the book of Acts and during the time of the writing of Revelation, Caesar demanded to be worshipped as God. And for most people in Rome, that's no biggie because they're all polythe polytheists, so add another God, who cares, we'll worship him too. But the Jews and the Christians, the monotheists, who only believed in worshipping one God, wouldn't worship Caesar. 
by the way, Rome wanted to make you happy. Rome would say, look, just pay your taxes and don't fight us, and we'll, we'll do whatever you want us to do to make you a part of our uh, country and our empire growing, expanding. Just We want you to be happy. You can have your false puppet political system, right? Have you ever thought of that when you're reading the Gospels? You have King Herod, who's owned by Caesar. You, you have to hear Rome just cracking up. Like, they think they have political power. Pontius Pilate's over Herod, and Caesar's over Pontius Pilate. They, they don't have any. But you know what? If you want a political system, go ahead. We don't care. Be happy. Just pay taxes and don't fight against us. So Caesar would say, hey, we also, you know, we want you to worship because that will help your submission. That will help. So we don't want to make it hard for you. We get it. Jews and Christians are not going to worship Caesar as God. We get it. We'll make it easy. So they would ask Jews and Christians to take a pinch of salt and put it at the foot of an altar that was raised up in the middle of a town to Caesar to say that's just kind of my tribute to Caesar. I'm just, that's honoring Caesar. Just think of how many Christians today would, I don't know, just take salt in the hand, walk by and go, okay, I did it. Like it's, it's an easy way to say I did it. Rome said, we, we want to make sure that it's easy for you. And Christians, back, back in Smyrna, you remember Smyrna? We will not worship Caesar. And at first it was, well, if you don't do that, you don't get a certificate of being able to own your business and, and live out commerce. So you have to do this to really survive. At first it wasn't, we're going to kill you. It's just, it's going to be hard to live. And Christians and Jews would say no. Then it was... Stop being silly. Just put the salt at the foot of the altar or else we're going to kill you. And Christians and Jews were being persecuted. So when we get here in Revelation 13, when people are not worshiping this image and he's killing them, that's nothing new. This has happened time and time and time again. It happened in Daniel chapter 3. In fact, if you are an underliner in your Bibles, verse 16, he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, that's a place to underline and bracket Daniel chapter 3. That's verbatim language from Daniel chapter 3 where Nebuchadnezzar says all people in the land need to come before the image, bow down, and worship it. So this is nothing new. It was happening in Daniel. It was happening in Smyrna. It was happening now. It is happening now, and it's going to happen in the future. Some people, when they read Revelation, they say there's no way these things are going to happen. This is just too chaotic and crazy. There's no way. And John's showing us it's actually already happened before. It's already happened before where you have to make a choice. Who am I going to worship? And what's the consequence going to be? Verse 16, he tells the whole world, you need to have this mark on your right hand or on your forehead. And he employs the tactic that the Caesars employed. He provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Some people... When we talk about the mark of the beast, we talk about the number of the beast, the 666. We get into crazy land, right? I mean, we can get into insanity. I'm not here to do that. I don't know what these things are. I don't know what the mark's going to be. I don't know what the number is. I'm going to give you my idea of it. But I have no idea what it's going to be. I don't think that's the point. We don't need to know. And I also don't think that we should live in fear. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not have to live in fear that somehow you are going to accidentally get the mark of the beast. Like if your social security number has 666 in it, 
or if your Visa credit card has 666, or like you don't have to worry about that. You've already been told by Jesus that it's not possible for you, if you are elect, to be taken away and deceived. And we know that here in this section of scripture that receiving the mark is impossible without worshiping the beast. You can't accidentally get this mark. It's, an, it's a mark that's given to you because you did what the beast is asking you to do. So if you say, I can't worship any other person but God himself, you're not going to be able to get this mark. This mark is yet another mimicry of the devil. It's a mimicry of the seal of the Holy Spirit on the true believers. It's the, the seal of the 144,000 Jews that we're going to see next week, Lord willing, in chapter 14. If they worship, if the, those who dwell on the earth worship, they get a mark. It's like a, a bondservant getting a mark to say, I'm owned by this person. It was commonplace back then. It's commonplace in other areas of the world even today. If you don't have the mark, you can't buy or sell. By the way, this would be very easy to implement, the no buying or selling, right? You need to get the mark, and if you don't get the mark, then you can't buy or sell. Your, your credit card doesn't work. Your, your ability to, to withdraw cash. I mean, I was just at the bank the other day. You stick your debit card in, and it says, Hi, Patrick. It knows my name, right? This would be very easy to implement. But here's the reality, and this is what I believe the point of this passage is. We can get stuck in the weeds of what these marks are and what the numbers are. Here's the reality. If you forsake your allegiance to Christ and conform to the image that's being established, you will save your life for a few years and then you will be destroyed. If you forsake your allegiance to Jesus and you decide, I'm going to follow the ways of the world. I'm going to say no to Jesus to save my own neck. You're going to save your life for a few years, and then you will be destroyed. You can choose to take the mark of God and not the mark of the beast, and you will escape God's wrath, but you'll face the wrath of the beast. You can take the mark of the beast and escape the wrath of the beast, but you're going to face the wrath of God. The reality is the mark that you wear determines the wrath that you face. And so I believe the question before us is not what is the mark or what is the number. I believe the question before us this morning is who is your master? Who do you worship? Who do you love? Who do you submit to? And really, there's only two possibilities. When you boil it all down, you either submit to Jesus or you submit to yourself. And if you submit to yourself right now, if you are king, if you are Lord, if you make your own decisions, you have your own will, then eventually at some point, if you're alive during this period of time and the choice is given, either live by worshiping this image or die and worship the Lord by doing so, you're going to say, no, I choose to worship self. I am king. I don't want to die, so I'm going to do this to save my own skin. The mark you wear will determine the wrath that you endure. And so, verse 18 is given to us and to those who will be reading this in the tribulation to help them understand what's going on in the time period. I don't know what the mark is. It could be a physical mark, yes. It could be um, some identification. I don't think that we have to be 
worried about certain numbers and you know, our credit cards and things like that that we've talked about. But verse 18 says, this is wisdom. This is wisdom. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. This is a, uh, taking biblical principles, applying them to your lives. And I believe that this is a, a reference that's being used for tribulation believers, that they will hear, they will see, they will understand what's going on. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, again, a lot of people get stuck in those numbers today. Like, you can't buy a house if it has 666 in the address. That's not what's happening. There's really two ways to take this. You've probably heard both of these two ways before, if you've thought at all about these numbers. You can either take it symbolically, that this is the number of man, this is the number of fallenness, that six represents man because man was made on the sixth day. It's also the number of incompletion because perfection is seven, so we're falling just short of perfection. Seven, the number of God. So this six is the number of man. And then you add six, six, six together. It's like saying holy, holy, holy. It's putting those three things together to say in its perfection. So this is fallenness in its perfection. This is depravity in its perfection. That could be it. That could be it. I think that's an okay interpretation. That this is just saying this is the this is the epitome of false ideology and Satanism uh, running its course. The only reason I have an issue with it is the word "calculate" in verse eighteen. Let him who has understanding calculate. There's something to be understood within these numbers. So it's not just a symbol about the numbers. It's not what the numbers signify, it's who the numbers signify. So it's not that they signify depravity, it's who they signify. And this is where, oh boy, we can get into weird stuff. This is something called gematria. Gematria is where you have a letter of the alphabet uh, assigned to a number and you put those numbers together. L let me just read a list of people throughout the years that have been uh, confirmed through gematria as 666, okay? This is like, you remember in the Super Bowl where they put, they always put the Super Bowl in Roman numerals, right? And the, the Roman numerals are a s signification of actual numbers. Just think of that, where you have letters that signify a number. And we're working backwards. These numbers, 666, signify letters, letters are a pattern of letters. And if you want to find Anybody to be the Antichrist, you can really do it through Gematria. Here are some people that 666 represents. Ready? Represents Nero, Caesar, Caligula, Plato, Muhammad, Martin Luther, Domitian, certain popes through the years, other Protestant reformers like John Calvin, Oliver Cromwell, John Wesley. You could just take your pick. Hitler's even been thrown in there as the Antichrist. But let me, let me do a little work for you here. Nero, Caesar... Many people think that Caesar, Nero Caesar, was the 666 representation. And you can get there if you do this whole flip from numbers to alphabet letters. You can do it. But with Caesar, Nero Caesar, you need to write it in Hebrew first. Write his name out in Hebrew. Translate it to Latin. Give it an extra letter so that it's misspelled, but it kind of works. And then you have 666 for Nero Caesar. With Hitler, you first misspell his name. You add a title to his name, Mr. Hitler. And then you add a translation from German into another language, and you have 666. So you can make it say anything you want it to say. And I believe, since we don't know who the Antichrist is, we don't even need to worry about this verse right now. 
we will be able to understand when the Antichrist is raised up, we'll be able to understand, oh, that's what it means. Somehow, and I, I lean more, because of the word calculate, I lean more towards the gematria way of understanding this, that somehow his name is going to line up perfectly with the substitution of letters to numbers. It's going to work. We don't need to worry about it right now. The reality is this number, 666, has given rise to so many people being terrified. And we know based off the book of Revelation, it's actually supposed to do the exact opposite. Revelation is written to give hope. This is written for believers. So we're not supposed to be terrified by 666. We're supposed to be given hope that for believers, we are given the ammunition that we need to defeat any foe, even if it's the Antichrist himself. God gives us everything that we need. Well, we'll be good. We can understand it. In fact, in Daniel, book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 10, you can read it on your own time, but Daniel actually speaks about during the end times being given special wisdom to understand what's happening. It's wisdom given from God. So I don't think we're going to understand it right now. I think in the end times, during that period of seven years, I think that we would understand it. But for now, please just know this verse is telling us that believers will not be caught by surprise. We'll never be caught by surprise. Ultimately, we've been told that tribulation's coming. We've been told that uh, trials are happening. We've been told that we're going to expect it. Remember that, that beautifully blessed verse in James that doesn't say, if you encounter trials, consider it pure joy, my brothers, if, as if some of us might not encounter trials. And just think, James, why did you have to be so pessimistic, man? Consider it pure joy when it's happening. Just money back guarantee, life's going to be hard. You're going to experience persecution. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what Paul tells Timothy. All who desire, it's a promise. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. So persecution's not going to surprise us, no matter how bad it is. Trials aren't going to surprise us, no matter how bad they are. They, they will shock you, right? It's like jumping into a pool of freezing cold water. It's going to shock for a little bit. But you know that it's coming. You know that it's there. And when we get to the end times, you're not going to be overtaken and surprised by a mark of the beast or the number 666. If we're alive during this time, you're not going to be taken off guard, caught by surprise. That's not going to happen for you. You're going to be able to give an, be given a chance to refuse the mark, and you will if you're elect, if you love Jesus. Many people say, man, I don't know if I'd be able to do that, stand up for Christ in that moment. I love the example that Corey Ten Boom gave. Uh, she asked her father the same question. I don't, I don't know if we, we could uh, stand for Jesus in the midst of everything that was going on in uh, Nazi-occupied Poland and Germany and uh, the, the threat of being taken away to concentration camps. She said, I don't know if we're going to be able to say yes to, to God and say no to the, the evil that's going on. And you remember his illustration. He said, Corey, when, when we're going to go on a trip and we're going to take the train, how do you get on the train? You have to have a ticket. Do I give you the ticket the moment that I buy it? No, I give you the ticket right before we're about to give on and you give it to the man and we're able to go. You're not in the trial yet. You're not on the train yet. And you're not going to get that ticket until we're about to go into it. But God is holding that ticket, waiting for you. You're about to get on that train. And brothers and sisters, for some of you, you're on the train right now, the train of suffering, the train of turmoil, the train of persecution. 
you're on that train right now, God has given you a ticket and you're holding on to it, the ticket of hope, the ticket of trusting him. But my friends, there are some of you that are about to enter into suffering. You don't know it yet. You don't know what's going to happen. You know that suffering's going to come, but you're about to enter into a season of suffering or trial. And God hasn't given you the ticket yet, but you can, you, again, money back guarantee you can take it home to the bank. God will give you that ticket of hope, of sustenance, of perseverance, the moment that you need it. Not a moment earlier. We say often at our church that God is never late, amen and amen, but he is hardly ever early. He waits and 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 he waits. Even like John 11, he'll wait until Lazarus dies and then says, I can still work with that. Believers will not be caught by surprise. They will have the opportunity to refuse the mark. They will have been given the wisdom to calculate to refuse the mark. You will not be caught by surprise. And it appears from Revelation that all genuine believers will refuse it. Only non-believers take the mark of the beast. Now, I say all of that as we wrap our time up. We've seen the person of the false prophet utilizing the tactic of false philosophy and man-made religion. We've seen the power of the false prophet utilizing the tactic of supernatural power and signs and wonders. And finally, we see the purpose of the false prophet to get you to bow your knee ultimately to the devil to the Antichrist, to that first beast. And if those first two tactics don't work on you, then he's going to use the third tactic, and that is the tactic of forced conformity. You will bow or you will die. So what are we to do with these? Well, that first tactic, the tactic of false philosophy and man-made religion, if you're going to navigate these times to come and the times today, false prophets are there today. If you're going to navigate with discernment, you need this book in your mind. You need truth. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You must know this book. That's why we teach it. That's why we preach it. That's why we read it. That's why we sing it. That's why we memorize it. That's why we pray it. That's why we study it together. We need this, or else we will fall to the false philosophies and man-made religions that are there by the false prophets in our world. But if you have this to be your guard, then you don't have to fear, and you'll be able to see the false philosophy for what it is. You'll be able to see the man-made religion for what it is. You'll, you'll discern those things and with love plead with others to follow Christ, not the errors that are around them. Number two, if the false prophet's utilizing the tactic of supernatural power, then you and I must know the point behind true supernatural power. And we've talked about this. We need to know the source behind the sign. Events are great, but events without explanation don't profit anyone anything. Again, you need to know the truth. Because signs are amazing, but signs are pointers. And they're to point you to something. They're to point you to the, the God who wrote this book. Point you to the truth found within its covers. And finally, number three. If the false prophet is going to utilize the tactic of forced conformity, which false prophets are doing today, Antichrists are doing around the world today. Our brothers and sisters around the world are dying because they will not bow the knee when they are faced with forced conformity. So how do we get out of this one? How do we fight this one? The easy answer is, you need to already have died. 
you need to already have died. When somebody comes to you and they say, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this, it's much easier to say, go ahead, because I've already died. My will is not my own. I was crucified with Christ. Therefore, if you take my life, you actually make my day because to live is Christ, to die is gain, and I'll be in the presence of Jesus where I want to be more than anything else in this world. You have nothing on me. You have no weapon against me. In fact, your greatest weapon against me is to kill me, and that's actually my greatest joy to be with Christ. You have no weapon. Now, yes, it's going to hurt, and yes, I don't want to die that way. But if we have to, if we've already died, people can try to get us to conform all they want. And with love and grace and compassion, we will plead with our persecutors to repent and trust in Jesus. And if they choose to kill us, they can kill us. God can either choose to spare us or like Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'll say, oh, king, God could spare us if he wanted to, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. We've already bowed the knee to God. We don't bow to anyone else. No matter how hard the false trinity tries, they will always fall short of the glory of God. No matter how hard Satan tries, he will never be able to take away God's own children from him. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so clear, even where there are question marks. And we, we do have questions. But what we know, we know with clarity. And what you've given for us to understand, we can absolutely apply it to our lives today. We want to do that. So, Father, enable us now to ask the question, even as we sing in response, who do we worship? Are we bowing the knee to Christ? Even as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, are we bowing the knee to Jesus? Do we love him and savor him and delight in him more than anything in this world? Father, encourage our hearts, comfort us, and prepare us now to partake of the Lord's Supper. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As our brother leads us in a song, I'm going to ask um, a few of the men if they would come this morning and take these elements and distribute them. Um, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, just take them, hold on to them. We will partake as a church family together. Um, so just hold on to them. And as they're given to you, let's sing in our hearts to the Lord as we worship him for who he is and for what he's done, and as we sing some words that are so appropriate to what we've just said, let's encourage our hearts with the truth of God's word and prepare to partake of these elements. Would you please stand with us?